Good evening. A heads up for tomorrow night between 10 and 11, is it 10 and 11? Yeah, 10 and 11 o'clock. Uh, Don McGlashan, up close and personal, ahead of his extensive nationwide tour. Uh, all sorts of interesting stuff we talk about. I remember seeing the Blams on many occasions and, oh God, sort of one of many misdemeanors. I think one of the first times I saw you, I spilt a whole big thing of beer. What are they called? Jugs. The I jugs. Think, yes. It was a jug. I think I spilt the whole thing all over you. Do you recall that? I'm not surprised. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, it's the kind of thing you'd do. Yeah, yeah. It was only one of many misdemeanors. Don McGlashan, up close and personal, personal, his songbook, and a fascinating story of how he wrote his first song. And he remembers doing it. I think you would. It's one of our most loved songbooks, I think. All right, uh, coming up next. Sounds like a really fab movie. Uh, Tea with the Danes. All details about this documentary, a lengthy one with James Group very shortly. At the movies with James Crute on Radio Live. Hello, James. Hello, Graham. Uh, this week, a couple of documentaries, and they both look fascinating to me. Um, we, let's kick off with this Australian thing about their affection or their association, shall we say, with the Kanga Bloody Roo. Yeah, look, this is quite interesting. Actually, one of the um, the co-directors uh, co is a Kiwi woman, uh, Kate McIntyre-Clear, mm -hmm. um, and she made a film about seven years ago called Yoga Woman, which was all about, you know, yoga, as you might expect. But this one has attracted a bit more controversy. Uh -huh. And this is all about... The, uh, unlike uh, Monty Python, the wattle isn't the emblem of Australia. Um, the, instead, it's the kangaroo, Skippy. Yeah, look at Qantas. The there you go, that'll do it. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, of course, you know, there are teams called the Wallabies and the Socceroos and the Ollieroos and the whateveroos. Yeah. Um, but the thing is that, unlike the Kiwi, they go and hunt their bloody national icon. And um, I was also reading that one of the other ones, the emu, they basically hunted to extinction at one point. Not quite. But... Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of interesting. And almost um, uh, the locals in some areas as well. Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> well, and and that, that's one of the points as well. Oh, is it? After the locals, the kangaroos are the Oh, most Jesus. Look, I, I think the thing about this is that um, there is this bizarre double standard. Well, do we call it a double standard? That, the, the you know, it is one of the, the, the iconic characters uh, of Australia, and yet it's it's hunted because it's a pest. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's like us having the possum yeah. or the stoat or something like that as our national icon rather than our friendly flightless bird. I think maybe a better parallel, something that is native, that is kind of uh, a pest. You can, uh, botanists could actually say uh, mangroves in some areas. And, yeah. uh, Old man's beard. Oh, no, no, that's an <laughs> no, import. No, I know. Um, yeah. uh, Oh, yeah, yeah. Puk yeah, that's probably a good example, yeah, actually. Yeah. But we don't actually classify it as a pest. No. But I guess, no. I, I guess the situation with kangaroos is kind of akin to us with rabbits in that, uh, that a lot of it is, well, well, they don't do it by poisoning, they do it by shooting. But there's also this meat industry, I mean, for a long time, and, and we still don't do it, really. We don't eat a lot of rabbit. I mean, there have been attempts in the past to sort of create cottage rabbit industries and things like that here, but... It's a shame, isn't it? It's good meat. 
Yeah, apparently so. There was a, a place in Dunedin that used to sell rabbit pies. Oh, uh, that I, used to I, do quite well. Rabbit every now and again. I like it. Yeah, Rogue but, pill, basically. But, the, but uh, so Australia has been, especially in the last few years, has been quite uh, strong on the idea of selling kangaroo meat overseas and becoming a massive export. Right. Problem is that the way that they're killed and the way that they're stored is doesn't meet any kind of hygiene standards. I mean, unlike all the other farmers, there's just no regulation whatsoever. Oh, because the animals are wild. You don't farm them. You just go out and shoot the buggers. That's right. That's right. So when the population gets up, people can get permits. They can get permits to go... Well, a permit allows them to go onto a neighbouring property and take out kangaroos as well, which uh, there's some harrowing footage that uh, some farm, some farmers or lifestyle blockers have got in this documentary of, you know, basically people coming over the fence... Uh, with their, you know, those old roo spotting um, four by fours, you know, guns on the back sort of thing, and, right. and finding spotlights uh, in the middle of their lounge sort of thing, as they chase these roos uh, around trying to kill them. But yeah, they're not stored. Um, the amount of time they take to uh, to kill them and then transport them, they're not stored at proper temperatures. And and they've done those consumer style surveys where they've tested the amount of E. coli and various other bugs that are in the meats when they're in the supermarket shelves, and it's not great. No. But you know, th you know, this is suggesting the Australian government is busy selling this as a terrific meat to the Russians, the Chinese. <laughs> but there's also this uh, animal welfare uh, state. Senator, I think he is. I can't remember. That's one of those Australian political things I haven't quite got my head around. Who's basically going around to these countries at the same time going, don't buy meat from us, mate. <laughs> it's really? absolutely riddled. It's just a disaster. I'd be hung for treachery, traitorism. And I, what I didn't realise is, that, yeah, exactly. What I didn't realise is that California has banned the import of uh, kangaroo products for the last 30 or 40 years. Their reason? Uh, just, they, you know, it's just one of those creatures that they don't think we should be harvesting for various things. And oh, really? And there was a big brouhaha um, a few years ago. Of course, it wasn't really meat in, in the 70s and 80s. It was all the football boots. So, of course, that game soccer was rife with people, uh, you know, wearing kangaroo leather. And, oh. and Beckham apparently had to do an about turn and stop wearing kangaroo leather boots. Well, isn't that a misunderstanding? It's not an endangered animal. Yeah, well, that's the thing, I guess. Well, but hey, I've just thought of one, James, that we sh shall not be smug. We, every year, um, harvest and eat tonnes of four endangered, native, endemic, only found in New Zealand, four species, every mutton year. Birds? Hmm? Mutton birds? White, no, mutton birds are billions of them. <laughs> White bait. Oh, yes. Good yeah, call. Yeah. Good call. No, juveniles, too. Anyway, yeah. so there we go. So yeah, so there's so there's all these kind of things going wrong, uh, going on with this, and it's just um, you know obviously the Australian government aren't happy with this documentary being around, but it's just this whole you know they're selling one thing to overseas consumers, but it's just the, the regulations are just not in place. Mm. It's just being you know it's this kind of. It's kind of this industry that's set apart from all the other hoops and things that people have to go through if you're a sheep farmer or a beef farmer or those kind of things. Yeah, okay. Uh, have you eaten um, kangaroo? I believe I have. Well, I think when I was a kid at an Australian restaurant about 30 years ago. Mm. It, it's a, it's, yeah, I, I, like, I, I, it tastes a lot like wallaby. 
I was going to say it's got that venison kind of gaminess, but not quite the same thing. Yeah, yeah. All right. Let's move on to Tea with the Dames. Uh, we've got four dead set iconic... We're talking sort of... Uh, the upper end of, of acting abilities, aren't we, with uh, the four great British Danes. Um, we're talking Royal Shakespeare Company, but so much more beyond. They've become television and cinema megastars and gathered together uh, for a chat. I've seen this usually done with um, musicians, uh, you know, old musicians. They get together and do this. But they've done this with the, the four famous British Danes. Tea with the Danes. Who's, who turns up for this informal chat? Well, you've got Mags, you've got Jude, you've got Eileen, and you've got Joan, better known as uh, Dame Judy Dench, Dame Maggie Smith, Dame Eileen Atkins, and Dame Joan Plowright. Now, of course, Joan Plowright also was married to uh, Laurence Olivier. So she was actually a lady before she was a dame. <laughs> Great, because, of course, well, he, of course, was Lord Olivier uh, oh, yeah. uh, later in his life. Um, yeah, so... It, this is definitely a fascinating thing. Uh, these four get together every so often at uh, Joan Plowright's uh, estate in Sussex and sort of, you know, shoot the breeze and gossip and have a bit of a catch-up. You know, it's kind of their downtime in between projects. I mean, uh, obviously Judy Dench and Maggie Smith are the two most in-demand actresses these days because of their television and uh, film careers. In fact, there's one hilarious moment where Maggie Smith let slip that an agent had told her that, you know, there aren't that many... I'll see if I can find you a role in America, dear. But it depends whether we can find one that Dame Judy hasn't got her paws on. <laughs> to which Judy Dench is most put out. I think what I like about this is that really there's no filter with the, these four, you know. The, the camera has just been switched on. And um, while it's obviously edited and includes a lot of fabulous archival footage and terrific stills, um, it's very much these four just talking trash isn't that isn't that ironic that four actors that you really you want to see them act um now you don't and this yeah, one well, uh, that's true that's true look there are some uh you know some very poignant moments there are some absolutely hilarious moments i mean it it is clear that judy dench's eyesight appears to be failing that's one thing you kind of take away from that she she really seems to struggle that all god come on she's how old is she god i'm not sure i think she's late 70s she's probably one of the younger oh. ones amongst the four of them yeah. but i mean you know over the course of 50 years starting out on the stage and then on screen these four have just played some amazing roles of course judy dench said she only became uh, m in the bond series because because her husband uh, wanted to say he was living with a Bond girl. Um, uh. <laughs> Maggie Smith tell, tells this great story. So Ma Maggie Smith used to be a part of the National Theatre, uh, which Laurence Olivier ran for a time. And the two of them used to have a number of arguments because he thought that Maggie couldn't do her vowels properly. Oh, God. Uh, being, being a Scot, I, I suggest, was part of that. Anyway... Um, apparently they used to squabble a little bit and they were in a production of Othello where she plays Desdemona and he was black-faced up to play Othello. Mm. And uh, he slapped her a little hard and oh. uh, she said, it was the only time I saw stars at the National. <laughs> nice line. Yeah. Hey, here's a little flavour of what happens. This is Yoink from the trailer. I did my first play when I was 10. We all just thought we were going to be stage actresses. I think I met you, Mags, in about 1958. 
and we went to Edinburgh to the festival. Did got we got pursued by Miles Mallison. Did we do that in Edinburgh? Yeah, we did it at the festival, don't you remember? No. I after, didn't know we were in Edinburgh. Uh, were we good? <laughs> Too long ago. <laughs> Michelle said, she can't play queens, you know. And George had said, I should think the last thing we want in a theatre for contemporary writers is girls born to play queens. <laughs> <laughs> I remember you saying, Mags, that you'd been discovered and rediscovered. Yeah, I'm still hanging in for that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so they really are characters. We can assume that these people are characters because they are great actresses, but it does it do, doesn't necessarily follow. But it does. Yeah, um, I think it does. I mean, particular. I mean, obviously there is a bit more focus on Smith and Dench. You know, the two more high-profile actresses now, but um, they those two have a wicked sense of humour. Good one. Does it's a long movie? Does it carry it all the way through this type of strategy? Uh, yeah, it does. It, I, it was interesting because I, I sort of wondered how they were going to end it, and at what point do you stop the cameras rolling? I mean, obviously they were there for a weekend, um, so maybe they're hoping one of them was going to drop dead. Oh, no, I don't think they were hoping that. That's oh, for sure. Oh, sorry, but but, um, <laughs> but but definitely, you know, I, there's, there's there's a slight there's a kind of endearing sort of scattershot approach to it all. You know, it is a bit, it's not strictly formalised into sections or things like that. You know, they don't discuss one topic and then another. There's a kind of shambling quality, you know, pick up the, co the conversation feels like it really is a conversation. So I think, I think that may frustrate a couple of viewers, but I think it also makes it feel more realistic and more natural, if you like. Um, but yeah, I, look, I, I think... It's you know it's interesting, particularly hearing them talking about you know being on the stage in the 50s and 60s. And as Judy Dench and Maggie Smith said, we didn't need the 60s revolution to happen. You know, we were quite happy being free spirits ourselves well before then, sort of thing. Yeah. She did also tell a great story about. Uh, of course, in those days, young actresses tended to be on their own, particularly if they'd come from outside of London, so they were living with a, a landlady or whatever. And, and Dench says that uh, if you didn't like your landlady, when you're about to leave, you nailed a kipper underneath the table. <laughs> right, nice one. Okay, James, it's called again Tea with Tea the Dames. With the Dames. Yep, Tea, and it's uh, in cinemas now. Kangaroo will be in uh, a few cinemas, one in Auckland, one in Wellington, one in Westport, and I think one in Gisborne, of all places. Oh, um, okay. But it will be screening from the 19th, well worth uh, seeking out, particularly if you've got an interest in animal welfare and, and Australian hypocrisy. Oh, right. Um, Take exactly. that, John Howard. Yeah. Okay, very good. Thank you very much, James. Max Cryer coming up next, answering your questions on words, their origin and meaning. Words with Max Cryer. Words in papers, words in books, words on TV, words for books, words of comfort, words of Max Cryer is here. Hello, Max. Hello. Lovely to see you again. Thank and you. it's always great fun to pick up your notes because I don't get them ahead of time. Uh, it's the big reveal, basically. <laughs> Max answering your questions about the English language, words, their origin and meaning. If you want to ask Max a question, go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. It should be obvious all the ways to ask a question there. Either email, you can do it on Facebook. And a special hello 
To those listening on the podcast, we on had podcast. We had a podcast blockage, Max. Oh. It was a bloody big rat down the intertube, and someone got a nice big, big bloody stick with a hook at the end of it, and they, they managed to yoink, yoink so it out. I'm so glad to hear it. Yeah, so we're all go again. Okay, uh, our word of the week, first of all, Max, is plastic. Plastic is a weird word because it functions in several different ways, as a noun and an adjective, and and, and even as a verb sometimes. Um, the word itself is descended from Greek. The Greek original is plastikos, meaning to mould, to change shape. And when it came into English in the 1600s, it retained that meaning of something being changed in shape, moulded or maybe even made flexible. And it retains that meaning as a description to this very day of certain kinds of surgeons who, after an accident, a plastic surgeon can repair or reconstruct parts or areas in order that they may present an acceptable appearance and will be able to do their job. So there it's being an adjective, meaning to change and settle into shape something but over time scientists discovered a way of shaping kinds of resins and cellulose derivatives plus casein and various things from petroleum and certain proteins which when properly mixed and shaped could be then hardened and that's when the change in the use of the word took over because this hardened substance became useful could be used in place of other materials as like glass and wood and metals and decorative items it could be drawn into filaments for weaving so by the early 1900s the word plastic now referred to the completed firm article and various forms of it developed like names like Bakelite and Vinylite and Lucite. Now, in parallel with this, the word also gained an unwelcome aura of meaning false and superficial because objects made from it were considered inferior to their former. There was a certain shade of put-down in referring to the newly invented credit card as being on the plastic. So the new use of the word has drifted a long way from Greek to mould, to change, because the modern substance known as plastic once formed and changed into something, like plastic shopping bags, is then virtually impossible to destroy. It cannot be changed or remoulded. Various incidents, uh, ingredients in the substance were able to be changed so that the resulting mixture we now know as plastic is unchangeable. Nobody yet seems to find a way of that final firm mix to be broken down. Once it has served its planned purpose, it can be disposed of. So at that point, the relationship of the old Greek word plastikos, meaning changeable, reaches the end of its connection with the modern word plastic because once plastic is made, it actually ceases to be changeable. You can burn it. I don't think that... You can't burn it if it's soaking in the ocean. Oh, no, true. Yeah, yeah. That's and it will very, remain in the ocean for... Very good point, Max. ...everybody's long life. Yeah, yeah, that's rather... It will be uh, part of the what they call the anthropic layer, uh, Anthropocene layer in geology. They'll be able to, in millions of years, when octopuses are um, the archaeologists... Are walking, walking the land. <laughs> they'll, they'll be able to see that layer. Well, there is a rumour that the amount of plastic going into the ocean at the moment, if it continues at this rate, that the oceans will rise. You know, because they've got this stuff in them pushing the water up. No. No? No, I'm not buying that. Oh, right. Well, there wouldn't be that much plastic, but no. there's anyway. Millions the water, of the water might rise due to melting ice, I think, quite a lot. 
Well, I don't think it's going to happen in our lifetime, but mm. there's certainly a growing awareness of the fact that oh, plastic yes. doesn't mean what it used to mean in no, Greek, no. when it meant you could mould something. Now it means you can make something which is virtually indestructible. Yeah, because it's a product, though. I think we've l seen a decline in the use of it metaphorically as well, like uh, some government's policy regarding the environment seems rather plastic that it's changeable, it's mutable, they can be pro this or anti this throughout. Well, that could be also interpreted as being phony. Right. As in the credit cards, you know, oh, he's doing it on the plastic, which means he actually hasn't got any money, he's just sort oh. of ticking a form somewhere. Oh. Yes, it's a dangerous word. Could best leave well alone then, Max. Yeah. Who knows what might <laughs> blow up. Oh, my job is just to explain the word and where it came from. Very good. Uh, somebody has asked about this word quintessential. Oh, yeah, I do notice it, get it gets bandied about. I don't know if um, it, with, with any real... Veracity. If the veracity of the people using it know what it means. So what does it mean, Max? Quintessential. Well, quintessential. In Italian, quinto means fifth, derived from the Latin word quint, which means equals five, and is still used in English to mean five. Um, a quintet is five musicians. A quintuplets means five children. And the other half of the word, quintessential, is also of Latin descent, essential, but has changed its meaning quite a lot. In ancient philosophies, the word was perceived as containing four... Sorry, the world. The world was conceived as containing four elements, water, earth, air, and fire. And in Latin, the word essentia was used to refer to the conditions extra to those. Extra, to body, extra bodies to earth, fire, water and air meant gravity, light and all the heavenly bodies. They were quinta essentia and that became quintessential. Now the word moved into English five, 400 years ago and gradually underwent a change in meaning. Quintessential moved aside from the five elements and we then tend to think mainly about the four elements and we receive quintessence as quintessential to refer to, here we go, the most essential part of any situation. Whatever it is, it is five times more important than any other part of its perception. In fact, you'll hear quintessence used to mean that part of a situation, speech, law, etc., to indicate the central core of the activity. Strictly speaking, that meaning wouldn't be considered valid by devoted etymologists, but words as old as that undergo changes. And our word essential, although it's derived directly from the ancient word for gravity, light and the heavenly bodies, it has changed. And we have been gently put aside, they have been gently put aside, so that quintessential could now be seen to mean a situation, a job, a personality or a lesson is bound to have one basic element which is five times more important than the rest mm. of the qualities being observed. Yeah. It's a tricky one to describe. It is, isn't mm. it? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's uh, a quality, a universal quality throughout the thing you're describing. Something along those lines? Yes, that's quite good. Um, but, of course, the reader asked why the word quint was in front right, of it. Right, right, yeah. And that's where my complication comes, because that means five. Yeah. And there are far more things than five which are essential to us. Mm, of course there are. Next. Food, for instance. <laughs> All right. Uh, I like this question when it came through just this week. Gosh, you got on this one quite quickly, Max. Uh, when did the phrase, oh, it's not rocket science, 
uh, come about. It must be post-rockets, one would imagine, but I'll never assume anything uh, that we know what it means now. Well, yes, the listeners said, um, when did the phrase, it's not rocket science, come into use? And, he added, was there something preceding it? Did people used to say, well, it's not steam engineering? Yeah, nice one. <laughs> well, the answer to question number one, the phrase not rocket science originated in America, um, first among the English-speaking countries to set up a serious program specifically intention to develop rocket science. Some of the military technologists in the American study were of German origin and were very highly regarded. The V-2 rocket, which already existed and had been used to attack London, had been developed by German technologists, so they were a bit ahead there. The origin of the phrase we're looking for is believed to have arisen from a remark made when the Soviets launched the first orbiting satellite, Sputnik, in 1957. Now, the legendary version from which we begin the answer is that President Eisenhower asked the American technologist, how did the Russians get there first? And the reply was, their Germans were better than our Germans. Ah. Because it was believed that Germans were high in the ranks of both countries' um, technology. Now, there's no 100% proof of that incident, but the story went around quickly. Gradually gained enhancement, influenced by the acceptance that developing a rocket was intellectually difficult, was outside the capabilities of the average man. At that time... In the 1950s and onwards, there was already what we could call a parent of the phrase, a parent of the phrase we're discussing, because it had a similar mention of a very difficult and highly esteemed profession, if something was easy. The listener asked, was there any saying preceding this one featuring rocket science? Did anyone say, oh, well, it's not steam engineering? Well, no, I don't think anybody did say that. But there was a phrase used long before rockets when Americans exclaimed that something should be dealt with easily. They would say, after all, it's not brain surgery, which, right. is, which is perceived as being one of the most difficult forms of activity. Mm. So where and when did relativity undemanding tasks start being said to be not rocket science? Well, the actual answer... Thank goodness I found it. The actual answer came in 1985. Wow. Wait for this, Graham. You're going to love this. When a Pennsylvania newspaper printed the line, coaching football is not rocket science and it's not brain surgery. It's a game, nothing more. Nice. <laughs> it is believed that from that statement that the, the, the line grew in use, President George Bush sometimes didn't mix things up and there was a legend that he once decided something was easy because it's not rocket surgery. Right. <laughs> That'll be George Herbert Walker Bush. Yeah. So perception that surgery involving the brain and designing and organising workable rockets were the reason why the basic idea of the phrase came into being. And the neat way that it became not just into being, but as a little catchphrase, seems to have been from a comparison between rocket science and coaching football. Nice. How lovely to be able to nail at least the, the first known usage of yes, that. Yes, yes. That, that's always a good feeling. We must leave yeah. a note for the future. After the first hour and a half of searching, you come across <laughs> the line that you've been looking for. <laughs> okay, uh, Max Cryer's here answering your questions on words, their origin and meaning. Feel free to ask. You can ask a question on Facebook. Use the email form on the webpage, all easy. Or if you want to write a letter, don't... L feel free. Don't let uh, that fading technology hold you back. P.O. Box 
Simon Street, Auckland. S-Y-M-O-N-D-S is the spelling of Simon Street. Max Cryer, answering your questions on words, their meaning, their origin, and stuff like that. Okay, the whole... I might quote you. What? Etymology means stuff like that. Yeah, stuff like that. That'll do. <laughs> oh, come on, Max, it's not rocket science. <laughs> okay, the whole shebang, somebody asks. Yeah, nice one. Yes, it's a good line, isn't it? The whole shebang. It sort of sounds right when you say it, but yeah. someone says, well, why do you say it? Where does it come from? Yeah, where's a shebang? Where would I get one? At the well, warehouse? Well, you can, actually. Um, perhaps not at the warehouse. The word began as an American slang term for a temporary dwelling, a shack, a hut. It was called a shebang. <laughs> and that word was first seen in print used by Americans when Walt Whitman wrote in 1862. He wrote... Besides the hospitals, I also go occasionally on long tours through the camps, talking with the men and sometimes at night among the groups around the fires in their shebang enclosures of bushes. Now, clearly, he meant a form of rough temporary dwelling, which we might call a shack or a shanty. But it's possible that shack and shanty may have been derived from shebang because the words shack had not heard before 1862 when shebang was first published. Now, there is another theory... This is always dangerous when there's another theory. There's, there's a theory that shebang is derived from the Anglo-Irish shebeen, which is a building used as an illegal drinking establishment, a sort of backstreet bar. And the word was used in early America to refer to a simple hut, because many Irish went to live in America. And as well, wait for it, there's a theory that shebang derives from a mispronunciation of the French word charabong, which is a bus, a big bus. Yeah. And the implication was that instead of booking just one seat on the bus, if you were taking several school classes, you were said to book the whole charabang. You meant the whole bus. Right. So exactly how the word changed its meaning isn't at all clear, although the big bus theory I find a bit difficult to accept, because in the 1800s, the whole shebang came to mean exactly that, the whole lot, the full amount. Hmm. Mark Twain was the first known person to use it in print, 1869. Um, somehow that seems right. It's just up his alley, isn't it? Yes. Well, well uh, yeah, we have to credit him. This mm -hmm. is Because 1869, he used the term whole shebang when he referred to the building and everything in it. So from then on, the translation to mean just everything was a fairly natural one. Nowadays it means just everything involved in or connected to a certain situation. And it seems to have grown from being somebody, some poor person's shack in which everything they owned was yeah. inside. Yeah. I, after the flood, I lost the crops, the cattle and the whole shebang. Yes. Yes. Shebang. A little building. Yes. I had no idea. So that's, that's what you're here for, Max, so we can leave <laughs> after you've been here. We know something we didn't know before. Oh, good. Thank you. Lackadaisical. Ah. What a funny-looking, <laughs> funny-sounding word. Um, does it mean sort of slouch and slouchily lazy? No, um, but it didn't start out like that. Oh, okay. Because what you said is more or less right. Lackadaisical now means listless, languid, with no interest... It's seen as one word, but it started out as a group of words. 
this is not uncommon that a group of words often um, over the years becomes one word. Fare thee well became farewell. God be with you became goodbye. Now, let us refer to Mr. William Shakespeare. You may have heard of him, Graham. Yeah. William Shakespeare wrote a play called Romeo and Juliet in 1592, and it seems to be the first place anyone can find the ancestor of lackadaisical. Juliet's nurse believes that Juliet is dead, and she cries out, she's dead, she's dead, alack the day. And at that time, signifying failure or shame, a lack a day was a recognition of woe or regret at something unfortunate. Yeah. And it's believed that a lack a day migrated into lack a day without the a uh, by a process of unintentional loss of a vowel, like Esquire dropped its e and, be uh, and became Squire. So during the 1700s, the term ups a daisy came into use. And there's a theory that during the 1700s, this influenced the use of lackaday into lackadaisy, as in D-A-I-S-Y. Uh -huh. Now, Tobias Smollett recorded this as street slang in his book, The Adventures of Roderick Random. So Who was Tobias Sm Smollett? He was a well-recognised British author who okay. wrote about Roderick Random in 1748. Mm -hmm. And in that novel, a female character explained, Good lackadaisy, the rogue is fled. And you find the word from then on as lackadaisical. Lawrence Stern wrote it in 1768. So the word lackadaisical now has quite a history. It now is a single word, but it's fairly complex. Looking at its history and its various manifestations over several changes, to explain fully what lackadaisical means in the manner of someone who for all of the day exhibits a sense of languid dissatisfaction of some failure or fault sounds very clumsy. Mm. It's not a word I would suggest you use, Graham. Really? Um, because you're articulate and fast. Lackadaisical. It does look clumsy. It's cumbersome. Too many syllables. S looks funny, doesn't it, on the page? And it's got such a complex history that it's not entirely clear when is the right place to use it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we'll spell it for you. L-A-C-K-A-D. A-I-S-I-C-A-L. Crikey. Um, all righty. Uh, the origin of stealing one's thunder. Uh, this is quite straightforward. It goes back to 1709. Um, in London, there was a playwright called John Dennis, and he wrote a play called Apius and Virginia. And the plot of the play at one point needed to have the sound of a storm and thunder outside off stage. During the rehearsal period, John Dennis invented a way of making this thunder sound. He found some big metal bowls and rolled big metal balls around in the big metal bowl. And this gave out a rumbling thunder-like sound. Now, unfortunately, the play was a failure. It didn't last long before being withdrawn. And soon afterwards, John Dennis, in a very bad grace, went to see the play which had replaced his play, which was Macbeth, somewhat more of a success. And during the show, John Dennis immediately recognised that the theatre was using the effect that he had invented. And he called out loudly, How the villains use me! They will not let my play run, but they steal my thunder. Oh. And from that one incident grew the expression over several hundred years that someone has stolen my thunder. 
Um, modifications in the actual words have come in, but the essence remains the same. That's yeah. something that is considered important and belonged to somebody else has been stolen from them. And it really was a thundery machine. It's one of those things that on the face of it you'd go oh doubt it you know it's too good to be true but it is in this case no it's been well reported and of course he was superseded quite soon after because someone invented the thunder sheet there's a certain way of hanging a sheet metal or a certain thickness of flexibility mm. that you mustn't walk if you're backstage in a, in a production you must never walk near it because if you need thunder the stage manager holds it and shakes it wow. and the rattling and rumbling oh, is quite phenomenal it's like a lean lie exhibit Oh, well, for a different reason. <laughs> now, I want to mention that today's date is a very good one. June the 9th. Go back 149 years today to 1869, and New Zealand gained its first university. James MacAndrew, the superintendent of the Otago Provincial Government, signed the ordinance named the University of Otago Ordinance, which resulted in the first university in New Zealand being established in Dunedin with the authority to confer degrees in arts, medicine, law and music, which it still does. Our oldest university, Otago. Yes, first one. Still has a little prestige oh, because prestige. of that, I think. Otago uses... University uses prestige anyway, whether yeah. it was the first or not. Mm. Oh, the, being the first helps. Mm. Just oh, it a does little. help, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. It knows what it's doing. Yeah. Remember, it wasn't that long ago when they announced the Canterbury, Cadbury Chocolate Factory in Dunedin was closing. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. And breathlessly, the news report was Dunedin's largest single employer. Get out the university would outstrip it by hundreds <laughs> i hadn't thought of that wouldn't it a target university for goodness sake well i suppose i mean I, i'm only thinking of it now that you've said it and i mean i've worked in dunedin a lot and i know that the university is very very big mm. and is, is extraordinarily highly regarded but i know nothing about the chocolate factory mm. all righty um i'm going to throw a little today in history as well Ooh. uh 50 years ago uh, the United States was reeling from the assassination of Robert Kennedy. Ah. You were at the ambassador, weren't you? The hotel? Yes, I was. I was there. I didn't see it happen, but I was there. It was a... You see, for some odd reason, the reports always said the Ambassador Hotel, and they didn't actually like to say what part of the hotel, because the hotel, like many big hotels in America, has a nightclub attached to it, called, quite famous, called the Coconut Grove. And um, my recollection, which is now going back, do you say 50 years? Yeah. Good heavens, well, it's a wonder I can remember it at all. Um, but I think it was the actual Coconut Grove in which it happened. I was there when... Um, uh, Andy Williams, who was a great friend of his, sang. I wanted to hear Andy Williams sing. And Andy Williams got up and sang during the event. But I think I'd actually... On that day? On that night. It was in the mm. evening. Um, I think I'm... I didn't see him shot, but no, yes, no, I was. No. I was in the crowd somewhere. Oh, heavens. Uh, and I was just reflecting what was on the charts in those days oh. and what was number one. Uh, because for those that were around at that time, it would probably colour that tune with a certain sadness. Colour? Hmm. Would have it, give it a feeling. Mrs. Robinson, Paul Simon. Mm. Neat song. And we're going to play uh, an interview with Paul Simon's biographer, 
uh, between 11 o'clock and 12. Grant Smithies is away. Did the movie come out at the same time, Mrs Robinson? The movie came out before the tune came out. The oh. director really, really liked Paul uh, Simon and Garfunkel and he wanted to use one of their tunes. They said, OK, he, we've got this one. It's not finished yet. Uh, that's why they went deep, 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 deep. They were going to put words in there. And he says, no, I really like the deep, 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 deeps. <laughs> and so they used it for The Graduate. And then the tune came out later and uh, was a massive hit, of course, number one. Well, the movie was good, too. Yeah. Uh, and it was originally going to be Mrs. Roosevelt, but they Ooh. liked Mrs. Robinson for the movie. So Robinson's got the rhythm. It has. <laughs> it's better than Roosevelt, yes, isn't it's it? it's better than Roosevelt. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. All right. It's a lovely thing, Mrs. Robinson. Uh, thank you, Max. And don't forget, yeah, the biographer, Paul Simon, between 11 o'clock and 12. It was recorded a little while ago, but it's still... Um, well, he's got a cracking story. And we have a bit of a fight.
Good God, Paul Simon was clever, wasn't he? Hell of a drop-off, though, in the 80s. <laughs> we have an argument about that with Paul Simon's biographer on this program between 11 o'clock and 12 this evening. Don't miss it. All right, and a heads-up for another musical thing, uh, Don McGlashan, up close and personal, tomorrow evening between 10 o'clock and 11. News spot and weather coming up. Spoiler alert if you're interested in rugby union and you're taping it or something. Uh, but this is a news organisation, so fingers in the ears, whatever you do. <laughs> <laughs>